I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is jobs. My guest today is David Brown, President and CEO of the Greater Omaha Chamber, one of the largest, most highly accredited chambers in the nation, as well as the 2015 Chamber of the Year. Backed by 30 years of experience in economic development, David serves the Chamber mission to champion a thriving business community and a prosperous region through visionary leadership and collaboration. David is married with two sons. David, thanks for being here. My pleasure. I want to boost our community and the first thing I want to ask is, tell me more about the Greater Omaha Chamber and especially about that 2015 award. Well, you know, we're a, a, a large chamber by um, virtually any measure, whether it's budget or staff or a number of members, much larger than you would suggest our playing weight is since we're only the 40th largest city in the market in the country and we're about the 11th largest chamber. So in, in a lot of ways that kind of speaks to Omaha, which is a bit of a business town. And so over the years, really we've been around 125 years next year, as a matter of fact, um, the business community has continued to put some responsibility on the Omaha Chamber for business-related issues. And so we've we've grown from kind of your traditional merchants association, if you will, to now a regional economic development organization, a membership organization with 3,200 members. We do public policy work. We do workforce development. We do economic development. We do entrepreneurship. We do small business development. Uh, and we do about 80 events a year to support our members and lots of education stuff. So we're a, a much bigger organization, I suppose, but mostly because our agenda is as big as it is because our members have asked us to do that work. So Chamber of the Year was fun. We we decided one year that we would apply for it, and it took us about six months to put the application together. Um, we had to go to Montreal to... Um, we were one of three uh, large chambers to be considered for it. We had to go to Montreal for the national convention to be interviewed uh, by a panel of our peers. Don't know who those peers are going to be. So you don't know if you've done something to maybe um, make them angry over time or not. So you have no idea what you're going to be able to do. And Brannigan and I did the interview. And um, then we had to wait all day long until they had the dinner that night to find out if we won. And the team was ecstatic that we won, and um, I promised them we would never have to apply again. So um, we will forever be the 2015 Chamber of the Year and very proud of it. Could you tell me just a little more about the criteria? Perhaps you could elaborate on that just a little bit. Sure. So um, before you even make it to the final dozen or so, you've got to turn in all kinds of information about your financials and your organizational structure and your systems, and there's a whole long set of criteria to see whether or not you even pass muster as a potential chamber of the year. So once we pass muster, then they said, okay, now the real work begins. You need to highlight two or three areas of your um, program of work, things that you've accomplished lately that you're most proud of. And so we put together this application that was, I think we had 10 or 15 things that we were proud of and had to figure out a way to narrow that down to a couple. Um, and the We Don't Coast one was a natural one because We Don't Coast for us was an effort to try and figure out a way to come up with an identity for an eight-county region full of 32 communities, two states, uh, and literally thousands of businesses who could all embrace this single brand uh, to rep reflect who they are as a community and as a region. And we did it with uh, dozens and dozens of PR firms, marketing firms, ad agencies who provided expertise, uh, 16 individuals who we handpicked from 46 different applicants, uh, applicant applicant firms who said they were willing to participate, um, who really kind of dug in and did the, the heavy branding work. Um, and then we had members of all the other agencies there to kind of critique what was being done. We had a group of corporate marketing people who could kind of be our, um, our, our gauge about whether or not the marketplace would respond well to these ideas that we came up with. And so we had Oh, maybe 100, 150 people involved in this process when all was said and done. It was the brainchild of Kim Selmeyer, who is our creative director, and she saw this through the whole process. And uh, when they presented it to us the first time, everybody sort of went, oh, that's really good. And we kind of knew we had something pretty special. And since then, more than 200 organizations have used it in promoting either events or their organizations themselves. 
Uh, we've used it all around the world from Omaha to China to Europe to Canada and South America. Uh, we've used it in every major city. We've used it to recruit people. We've used it to recruit companies. Um, we've used it to um, talk to friends like Peyton Manning and others who have used the Omaha word out there and try and give us you know, really good kudos. So it's a great branding term for us, and it's been something that we can um, rejuvenate, do something really major with every year to kind of highlight it. So this year is the We Don't Coast license plates. So it, it's a, a brand that we intend to use for a long, long time. The uh, workforce development piece that we highlighted then was really about our uh, tech talent initiative. And we had done a lot of research to try and figure out uh, where we had gaps in the labor force. In other words, we had more jobs available than we had people to fill them. And so we ended up doing a lot of research and found there are 59 occupations in this market that we had a shortage of people compared to the jobs that were available. And there was one common thread on the largest groups of these, and that was IT workers. We found out at the time that we had about 1,500 IT jobs open, and we were only cranking out about 400 additional IT graduates each year through our system. So at the time, we had about 14,000 IT workers in this market, and we knew that just organically it would probably grow by four or 500 a year, but we knew that we probably need to grow it more than that. So we set a goal of 20,000 IT workers by 2020. So that meant that we had to grow by 6,000 over essentially five years, the number of IT workers in this market. And only about four or 500 of that would be organic growth. So we had to somehow figure out a way to come up with 700 to 800 additional IT workers into our market to meet the demands that we knew the IT community was going to have for them. So we've created a strategy that is a three-part strategy. Uh, part of it is to uh, make sure we grab every single graduate that we can from every Nebraska area engineering school and make sure that they stay here if, if they can from an IT perspective. And that's both from a two-year certification perspective to a four-year degree. Uh, then we also found, know that there's probably 500 people out there that are have skills that are close to being an IT worker but aren't quite there. But we can find those 500 people and transition them through training and education um, to be IT workers, which gives them higher career capabilities, more wages, those kind of things. And then finally, uh, we know we're going to have to do some recruiting. And so we're working with companies who are out there and all the campuses around the region who are trying to recruit college students. They're promoting their companies and we're promoting the community. And so we're out there trying to show that Omaha is this really cool place that college students should consider for a career and that there'll be great IT careers here for them. And so by 2020, we hope to have 20,000 people working in those spaces. So those are the two things that we highlighted in the uh, application for Chamber of the Year. I don't know enough about chambers across the country, but it seems as if the Omaha Chamber has a really vibrant role to play around talent. What is the role, perhaps more expansively or beyond what you've just described, uh, for the Omaha Chamber in terms of jobs, job identification, job creation, nurturing jobs? Well, the Chamber has been an economic development organization now for well over 40 years. Um, and in the last several years, we've been involved in well, since 2000, since actually from since 93, we've been involved in creating about 35,000 jobs. So uh, th th there's a, a lot of work has been done to create job opportunities here. And if you think about the kind of jobs that have been created, they've crossed the board from IT jobs to manufacturing jobs to virtually any kind of customer service job you can imagine. And as our economy continues to evolve and grow, the jobs change. And therefore, the requirements for those jobs also change. So what we find ourselves betwixt and between here, our job is to grow the economy. That's a good bit of what we do. And you can only grow the economy if you've got people to fill the jobs necessary. We look at it from a perspective of every year we should be growing the economy here by virtue of growing the number of companies that are here and either through startups or through recruitment and retaining and expanding as many of the ones that we currently have here. When we do that, we need people. And so we have this really interesting low unemployment rate right now of you know 3.4% or so. Uh, and 
we know that companies all across America are having trouble finding workers for the kind of jobs that they have available. So we very quickly realized that we needed to be in the talent development business or the talent recruitment business uh, if we were going to be successful in the economic development business. We started really being involved in workforce development probably, I'd imagine, seven or eight years ago, maybe even a little bit longer, uh, just trying to figure out where the gaps were and starting to work with partners who do have responsibility for training, like Metro Community College, who uh, is really the purveyor, if you will, of trade education in this market. Uh, you know, The more that they can produce, the more people we can employ. Um, we need to figure out a way that we can identify the companies that are going to be growing here, the skill sets of the people that they need, the experience level or the education level of the people that they need, and then figure out a way to meet that need. So we've all of a sudden gotten into talent in a big way because we're in economic development in a big way. And I don't believe that whether you're a chamber or an economic development organization anywhere in the country, that you can be in the economic development game without worrying about the availability and the quality of your talent. I got my mojo working, babe, and I'm gonna try it on you. Oh, yeah. I got my mojo working, babe, and I'm gonna try it out on you. I think that's a very progressive vision. What is the future of work and how does the chamber go about thinking not just about where is the gap today, but where is the gap in in the next decade? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. We've actually been trying to ask ourselves this, the same issue. Of how, do we, how do we figure out what um, the economy is going to look like, what the community could potentially look like 20 years from now? Because decisions we make uh, today will certainly impact that community. So we started really by engaging our young professionals. So 12 years ago, when we started our Young Professionals Council, uh, we one of the reasons we did that was we were trying to get perspective from the next generation about what this place needed to look like for them to be interested in living here, having their their kids here, raising their families here. Uh, and then we've we've evolved from there to start thinking about, okay, well, what what what's the next big industry that might be out there? I. We've tried that over the years to try and plan ahead. Well, what's the next big thing? Um, but I'm real. We've realized recently that there's actually a an industry out there called the futurist industry. Uh, they actually offer degrees in being a futurist, which I didn't know this before a couple of years ago. And it just so happens we have a friend in the future business, uh, Rebecca Ryan, who actually helped us get our original Young Professionals Council started about a dozen years ago. She's been a good friend to Omaha and a uh, a great mentor when it comes to talking about millennials and what it takes to build communities where millennials can be successful. And then she's evolved that into a futurist consulting business. And so we've decided that we're going to build our next economic development strategy, not by doing a five-year strategic plan like we have each of the last few times, looking back at what we got done the last five years and then trying to figure out how we can improve it this five years. Instead, we're going to look out 20, 25 years into the future using these futurist skills and research and then back plan from that the steps that we need to take to accomplish that future. So this is a brand new process for us. We've actually hired Rebecca as our futurist in residence. She'll be here in Omaha for the year. She'll be in Omaha three days a month until I think November, December of next year, of this year. And um, part of that is that we're making her available to um, nonprofits and for-profit businesses alike to learn how to do some of this future scoping for their own businesses, to gain some advantage from the research that we're already doing, uh, to try and figure out how they could help with their strategic planning process too. So it, it's a totally different process for us, uh, but it'll tell us, we think, a lot more about the kind of education needs that we have, the kind of infrastructure needs we're going to have, the kind of uh, cultural and art needs that we're going to have. Um, I, mean, I mean, really, it should help identify for us those disruptions that we need to avoid and maybe even those disruptions that we need to cause uh, in order to have things happen. We need to catalyze some changes sometimes and 
maybe that means we had a cause change to happen. That's fascinating at so many levels. It's very progressive. What is it that makes the Omaha Chamber willing to take that kind of leap? You know, I think part of it is our leadership. Um, and I, by, by leadership, I mean our volunteer leadership who are willing to take lots of chances. Um, you know, we started about uh, five years ago creating a thing we call a barometer. And the barometer compares Omaha and our MSA against um, nine other communities in the country. Three of them are, company, are communities that we compete against for economic development on a pretty regular basis. Three of them are cities we would consider kind of peer cities. We may not compete with them, but they are about the same size and have some very similar attributes to us. And then three of them are aspirational cities. And what we found was against all of these cities, there were some things that we did remarkably well and we were top of the heap. And there were some things we didn't do so well and we weren't the top of the heap. And it gave the board a, a perspective that said, we still got an awful lot to do irrespective of how well we are doing in this community. That, I think, has given the board then, and our executive committee in particular, the willingness to say, if we're going to do economic development, let's do it the best that it can be done. I mean, I'll give my team a lot of credit, too. I get to come up with all these really interesting ideas, and then they got to implement them. So it's a great team of people I've got that make a lot out of nothing, really, or bring to reality some things that um, maybe some other chambers aren't able to do. This connection between economic development, but other factors that influence the well-being of community. You talked about uh, you know some of the social factors, whether it's poverty, so on and so forth, and some of the partnerships you've put in place. And so, I, I don't want us to pretend that everything is is wonderful because no community has everything completely worked out. I think it's very unusual, though, for chambers to be as um, aware of the overlaps between those domains and not least because you mentioned the unemployment rate average in in this region is 3.4 percent but even within this region clearly it fluctuates and and we're sitting now recording in uh, the Malcolm X uh, Center in a part of North Omaha where the unemployment rate clearly here is 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 higher mm -hmm. I wonder what we do what the chamber is doing even if it's its role and I'm not even sure that's true but what the chamber is doing to uh, tackle the hot spots where there are more challenges than, than others. Sure. Part of our uh, effort is to cause an opportunity for prosperity for all citizens in some way or another. Our, our strategy itself is called Prosper Omaha to remind us that there are pockets of poverty out there that um, we're not, they're not seeing the kind of prosperity that other parts of the community are seeing. And so we remain engaged in, three areas that are particularly challenging in that regard, North Omaha, South Omaha, and Council Bluffs. Um, those are really kind of our pockets of poverty in this, in this market and also happens to be where the highest unemployment rate is. So really since about nine, 2004, we've been involved in kind of the community development business, but really what that meant is that East Omaha was not being developed as much as, as it could have been, as, as much as the rest of the community was. And so we've been trying to figure out ways to, to cause development to occur, job creation to happen, housing development to happen, infrastructure improvements to happen, um, trying to create enough value that it would cause additional spinoff development to occur. It's happened a lot in Midtown, and we've seen that. I mean, when Midtown Crossing came up, the impact that that's had on that, that region and that neighborhood is remarkable. What the Nebraska Med Center has done there has caused huge development to occur as well. And so you can see that kind of spinoff that we would hope to see in other places. What's clear, though, is that um, there aren't great big projects like that happening in both North and South Omaha or even the areas in Council Bluffs where it could foster that kind of redevelopment, too. So we've had to try and figure out how to make that happen. It has been more successful some days than others. Um, when you when we brought the Walmart into North Omaha, as an example, um, that was in response to a whole host of things, not the least of which was that there really wasn't a major grocery store in North Omaha at the time. Um, 
We thought that that could be a real magnet for additional development around it. It's seen nominal development around it, outward bounds right across the street, which is terrific. Um, we saw a lot of developments along Ames Avenue and the financial institutions. So there's a lot of credit unions and, and bank branches there that weren't there before. But that really wasn't all that we had hoped would happen there. But we continue to do more work. And so um, 75 North now is doing remarkable work and a big project not too far from where we sit today that will have exactly the kind of dramatic impact that we hope to see uh, in North Omaha. When that opens, you'll start seeing things happening around that as the neighborhood develops around it. Um, what Metro Community College is doing with their both the Culinary Institute as well as their training facility that they're building, that's going to have a huge impact on the neighborhood. It's already We're already seeing development on the east side of 30th Street, uh, right across the street from Metro. So we'll see some of those developments occur. It has just taken us a lot longer. Um, the land bank was put in place, frankly, for this reason, to be able to have a, a tool in place that would uh, acquire property so that more housing could be developed, particularly in North Omaha and South Omaha. Um, now we've created a thing called SPARK, which is a risk financing arm that can help developers who want to do projects in East Omaha to make them happen. So we continue to put more and more and more tools and do more and more and more programming. It's just taken a lot longer than what we would like. It's still, though, Stuart comes down to um, there are people in North Omaha who are ready to work, who want to work, who maybe can't get to work. And so there's a transportation issue that needs to be resolved. Most of the jobs that are being created in this market are south and west of here, uh, Sarpy County, let's say, or even western Douglas County. And if you don't have a car, you can't get there for the most part, particularly second shift and third shift. Those are virtually impossible to get to. Um, we have some child care issues that need to be resolved. Uh, there's, there's a welfare system here that says that you earn more than 12 bucks an hour, you lose your, your child care benefits. Well, that just keeps people from being able to take promotions and move up in their company because they can't afford to lose child care benefits. So we've got some structural infrastructure things that need to be done. So when you think about why the chamber might be interested in mass transit, it's a talent issue for us. When you wonder why the chamber was involved in welfare reform, it's a talent and workforce development issue for us. And so we're involved in a lot of these different issues to try and get as much of the population that is available to potentially work, ready to work and willing to work and then get them to their jobs. I was just thinking, I want to hug you because the chamber is doing all these things. But then I also simultaneously want to shake my fist at our civic institutions because to me, community at large, a civically engaged community should be attending to all of these issues. It shouldn't be left to uh, an economic development engine to have to have responsibility for issues like poverty, transit, social well-being, healthcare, access to groceries, this kind of thing. So I'm delighted that you're doing it, but it, it seems kind of unusual. And as I said, I hadn't intended to have that thought, but it's it's well, there. You know, I think that's that's fair, but it also understates the number of partnerships that we have. So in reality, the chamber has legitimacy and no authority. Um, we have legitimacy because we get things done, but there's not a law out there that says the chamber has to do this, or the chamber has to do that. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of non-for-profit and government entities that are working in the same space that we are, in most cases, as our partner. We have 65 different organizations at last count that we partner with in the community to get things done. So when I say we, it isn't just the chamber. It's a collective we of United Way and the Urban League and fill in the blank of all the different organizations that we're involved in a, on, a, with a, on a daily basis who have the same kind of goals that we have, have a, a different piece of the mission, if you will. And so we can do our part and they can do their part and collectively we can get something done. So really maybe the thing that makes us most unique in this whole process is our desire and ability to collaborate. You read our mission statement when you did my bio, and we're serious about the fact that you know leadership comes with vision and collaboration. We can't get all this done by ourselves, nor should we want to. It isn't, like you say, it's not our normal cup of tea, if you will, to go there. But if we can be helpful in those spaces and get something done and then move on to something else, that's great. That's exactly the role that we should play. Um, but I, I don't want to leave the impression that we're the only one playing in this space. There's a lot of people playing in it. A lot of people have been doing it longer than we have. We just think that maybe because of the 
the momentum that we can help bring to the table, that we can maybe make things happen more quickly, uh, maybe bring more resources to the table than have been brought at a problem before. What was your first job? Uh, my dad owned a small restaurant when we were growing up. So me and my sisters all um, worked in a restaurant somehow or another. I was a busboy and a dishwasher for the longest time. My sisters all waited tables and all that kind of good stuff. Um, and so for lots of years before I got paid to work, I, I worked with, with him, which was fun because you get to spend time with your dad, plus you get to learn the, those, those skills. Um, I think my first job without my father as my boss was a, I was flipping burgers at a Hardee's. And then on the weekends, I worked in a movie theater taking tickets when people walked in and then cleaning up the popcorn mess after the movies were done. Um, but I, I was actually fortunate. My dad was a bit of an entrepreneur, um, never had two nickels really to rub together, but always enough to put food on the table for the family. And I, he always had a job that I could do in some way or another with him. So whether it was working outside at a, a marina where he was working or um, working at a restaurant that he was running, uh, there was something, a job that I could do there. And so, you know, I learned an awful lot about hard work. I, I started learning about training, if you will, how important it was to learn from somebody who knew what the heck they were doing. Um, you know, and I think also my dad always thought work was fun. I mean, he, he never did anything that he didn't really enjoy. Even when he had a job that he wished it wasn't just a job, um, it was in a field that he thought was interesting and that he could have a good time at. And so, I mean, I, I decided early on that it made no sense just to have a job. I better have something I really enjoy doing. And so if you just take those three things, really hard work, um, knowing that hard work makes sense, doing the training you need to do to do the job right, um, and enjoying what you're doing, uh, those are things that kind of stick with me when I think about what my dad taught me. So why do you do what you do now? You're the CEO and president of the Omaha Chamber. So why do you do this job? You know, I, I got, I fell into it a little bit. Um, I was in college. We had a guest professor one, one year, one fall. I played football in college and I needed to find a class that I thought was going to be easy during the fall one year. And there was this class in the geography program. I had to take a social science class and it was called um, industrial location theory, why some communities grow and some don't. And I'm thinking, how hard can that be? So I go in this class and it's being taught by a, a visiting professor and I was just sold the very first day. And so that's what I do for a living. I mean, which is very, very odd, but really every single day I worry about growing communities and why companies would come to this place rather than somewhere else or why companies would stay here rather than going somewhere else, what it takes to make a community strong. And, and I've realized over time that it was about making a difference in communities. That's really what I love to do. So if you could wave a magic wand and do anything in the realm of jobs or the chamber or making a difference in community, how would you wave that wand? I'd wipe out the academic achievement gap between poor kids and more affluent kids. Because in the end, that's what makes the difference in what your career is going to be like, what your earning capability is going to be like, what your family life is going to be like. That's where the difference all is. If you can wipe out that academic achievement gap and have all kids be have an opportunity for a great education and take advantage of that, I think we see huge, huge movement in what this community can be like and what their lives can be like. David, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Good to see you again. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
Welcome back to Lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Dialogue, that part of the show when I'm joined by guests to talk broadly about the show's theme, which this week is jobs. With me in Dialogue are Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado, Omade Zabi, and Michael Sitch-Jones. Omade Zabi is a staff attorney with the Immigrants and Communities Program at Nebraska Appleseed. Omade's work mainly focuses on developing positive policy and legal changes related to immigration and to improve the safety and health of meatpacking workers. Prior to Appleseed, Omade worked as a congressional staffer in Washington, D.C. for Senator Ben Nelson. He earned a B.S. from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and a J.D. with distinction from the University of Nebraska College of Law. In addition to his work at Nebraska Appleseed, Omade serves on the board of directors for Nebraskans for Civic Reform. Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado is the Assistant Vice-Chancellor for Student Affairs and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. As the Chief Student Affairs Officer, Jonathan oversees diversity, inclusion and equity issues on campus. He is also a Professor of Political Science with an emphasis on US foreign policy, international development and national security. Jonathan serves on the board of the US Commission on Civil Rights, Since 1992, he has visited Cuba 30 times for field research on energy and economic development and has conducted interviews with a number of senior government officials in Cuba's energy and related agencies. He has served as a technical advisor to a number of U.S. delegations to Cuba and Latin America on energy development, national security and strategic non-proliferation trade issues and regularly speaks on these issues in Washington, D.C. and across the nation. As Director of Development and Marketing, Michael Sitch-Jones provides leadership for donor development and communications at the Urban League of Nebraska. Michael is a graduate of Oklahoma State University, where he studied advertising and marketing and worked in student affairs, focusing on diversity and inclusion. He continues to be involved in social justice issues, focusing on equality, economic empowerment, reproductive justice, and youth empowerment. He most recently served on the boards of GLSEN Omaha, the Friends of Planned Parenthood of the Heartland, and Justice and Witness Ministries, one of the national governing boards of the United Church of Christ. Michael is a member of First Central Congregational United Church of Christ, where his husband, Scott, serves as senior pastor. In April 2015, they welcomed their son, who is a constant delight. Not more than 10 years ago, the iPhone didn't even exist. So imagine a decade hence. What is the future of work? I thought I'd start big. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in the middle of reading Tom Friedman's book on, on, you know, uh, Thank You for Being Late, which really kind of is a reflection on on where we are as a society in relation to our economy now. And I think for me, the thing that is most striking about it for him, and I, and, I, and, I, and I agree with him, is that, you know, the world is moving at warp speed. And it's hard for humans to kind of pin where they're at relative to that, let alone situate themselves in a, in a manner that, that gives them comfort. And yet he sees great opportunity in that. And so I imagine that in 10 years from now, you know, we'll have uh, something that was not possibly imagined um, today, in spite of the fact that there's things happening every day that just make you shake your head. Wow, how did this happen? You know, and we, as we continue to move toward automation, um, there are still certain essential human tasks that cannot be replicated by a machine. Um, and so... I guess my job as an educator is that I'm trying to make my students cognizant of that reality, that the socio-emotional maturity of an individual and, and the creative, creative and critical you know, thinking skills that they have are really going to be their calling card. And I think unlike in the past where you said, well, I have a degree in sociology, what does that mean? You know, today... I would hope that my students, you know, can begin thinking about their lives as I have these particular skills and competencies and they mean X in the world. So it's a whole reorientation of how we see higher education relative to the marketplace. There will always be, you know, basic functions that are need to be carried out by humans. And yet in a world where we have increasing automation, I think that's where we have this big disconnect in the, in, in our, in the industrial world today of people 
who no longer see that, you know, what minimal skills they had, it got them in employment when they were younger in life, you know, don't serve them after 10 or 15 years. And the reality is, is most young people will change careers a minimum of three times before they turn 45 years old. And so how do we situate and prepare people for that reality? I'm not sure what the future of work looks like, but I know that um, there's a increasing movement to to try to have work that is um, safe and also, you know, secure. I think there's a movement for quality jobs. So you, you see uh, working people wanting to have jobs with paid leave, you know, uh, to have things like jobs with a safe workplace where they won't be permanently disabled or crippled, you know, after 10 or 20 years of work, uh, where they have good wages, you know, because I think, uh, Probably in the past, there was uh, this idea that you would work a manually skilled job and then you would get an education or, or, or move up to a job that wasn't as, you know, uh, physically taxing. But I think now there's recognition that, that the manual, those manual labor jobs are actually, I mean, they are skilled jobs and they're good jobs for people to have. Now, uh, you know, people want to see uh, different types of policies to really help them uh, stay in that job for a long period of time to help support themselves and their family and to also, you know, have the sorts of benefits that should be you know, available to, to working people um, universally. Otherwise, you're just going to see um, what you see now, which is, uh, you know, at Appleseed, we work with meatpacking workers. And after, you know, three to five years of work, we've seen people who've had to quit because they've had multiple surgeries on their hands, shoulders, or wrists or back, and they're essentially unable to work after that. So they're left permanently disabled or, or crippled for the rest of their life. And they're un- unable to play with their kids or do basic household chores. There's a real need to have uh, a safe and, and quality jobs uh, uh, for the future. My mom worked in her later in life, worked in a meat packing plant and she, gosh, and she was 62 and she was doing it and all these other youngins were getting burnt out. So has a special place uh, in my heart, but it's intense work. Um, I remember thinking back to the 2008 election, uh, John McCain and um, President Obama were having a town hall meeting. And there's this really powerful moment that I don't think got as much attention as it should have when someone asked, you know, where, when are you bringing, are you going to bring back these coal jobs and these other um labor intensive jobs. And he said, John McCain honestly said, and it's the truth and it's the truth today in 2017, those jobs are not coming back. So how do we prepare for the new economy? Uh, it takes investment. And, and we were looking, you talked about the iPhone, which is now how, how much, uh, 10 years old. Okay. What's the next innovation? We need to invest in this country and into that and where that's going to be coming from. We like to say that we'll leave it up to the free markets and that uh, companies are going to pay into R&D. It, it's not. I think it's going to take uh, our, our government and the people of this country investing in innovation uh, so we can create the jobs of the future. That makes me think about local data as well as national data. So um, locally, we know, for example, that um, Omaha has an average unemployment rate around 3%, but it's double that in certain populations, for example, the African-American population. The question might be, who are we leaving behind and who are we going to take forward as a society? And then, you know, who has the capacity to take themselves forward and who doesn't have the capacity? And I, I think this recent election maybe indicates some of the tensions around the answers to those questions about who is being left behind and who is going to be taken forward. One of the critical elements of that question, though, is what are we doing today to address that? And, and, what, and what I mean by that is our education system equipped to, to really assist people in understanding that about their reality? Is it and, and and then again for those people who are displaced in the marketplace because of of progress as the way that it's always stated, what's left for them? And I would argue that so much of what we're dealing with today is really the failure to address that on both ends of the scale. You know, you think about the folks that have lost those low low skill but relatively well paying jobs that really 
allowed families to go from working class to middle class for so many generations. I think Omaha is a great example of the role that the the slaughterhouses used to play here, that it was a way up and out for a lot of families. And a lot of families in Nebraska, especially in the western part, eastern part of the state, can trace their family history to that. And it seems to be forgotten that that's really the kind of way in which, you know, the West Corporation putting telephones together, you know, uh, the meatpacking industry, that you know, the line was significantly slower than it is today. And you were making reference to this, you know, it's speeded up fivefold in the last generation of work. And the fact of the matter is that the lifespan of an individual working in that industry is 18 months. So you have to continuously replenish the stock of workers in order to make the enterprise continue to be successful. But what happens to those people when they age out or they're so hurt and infirm that they can't work that any longer? What happens to somebody who after 30 years working in a particular industry is displaced because the job has gone overseas? And like, you know, one of the the realities of globalization is this, is that business enterprises are always looking for the low cost center of production, no matter where it is. That's the nature of the beast that we've created. And and so the, 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 that reality remains firmly in place. You know, I'm going to give a quick anecdote and hopefully it doesn't take too long. But back in the 1960s and 70s, Green Giant was based in southern Minnesota. And they they revolutionized food by having flash frozen vegetables that you could just heat up and eat at night. Well, when the cost of labor got too high for them, they decided to move to Watsonville, California, where they could hire low-skilled, relatively low-wage Mexican immigrants for the most part to do that. But guess what? Over the course of time, they, they unionized. They got smart raising the price of labor. Well, where was Green Giant going to go? Because they still want to be able to give you the $2.39 little package of broccoli. Well, they moved the entire operation to Mexico. Because now they don't have to pay them seven bucks an hour. They could pay them seven bucks a day. The irony of which is the people that work in that industry can't even afford to buy what they're producing. And so it really has a very, very mean and pernicious kind of trajectory that we haven't figured out a way to escape. The jobs are not coming back, like you said. I think they're gone forever. So what do we create in their absence? And all we've been able to do thus far is create service sector jobs for the most part, unless you're very well educated. And I mean, usually having a BA. A BA is what a high school diploma used to be two generations ago. The fact of almost every student, if they've done well, guess what they want to do next? I want to get a master's degree so I can get a better job. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I have this sense that it's a modern phenomena that our work should be happy, a happy place. It should fulfill us in some way. And I think for a long history, actually, the truth is that work was mundane, diminishing, boring. It wasn't less noble. To be a worker was not a bad thing to be, but work itself wasn't the source of our personal fulfillment. And I'm wondering if there's a tension there as we start to think about what, what jobs should be for us now and for the future. Are we putting too much weight upon what a job should mean for us in terms of our personal fulfillment and social fulfillment? You know, you have these conversations about millennials, but I th think in a lot of ways there's they're having great conversations and have moved beyond conversations or living the have finding this work life balance that you know my parents didn't have i mean i i was convinced that if my mother stopped working she would die i mean that's how she was raised um 
but understanding that maybe I don't need these material things I can live in the present because gosh only knows how long I'm going to live or how much time I'm going to have with my friends and loved ones. Um, so I'm glad to see this shift and I wish, you know, my, my, my parents' generation had experienced that shift. I maybe would have had some more quality time with my, my parents. Still the operative question when you meet somebody is what do you do and what is it that we're looking for? We want to figure out how much money they make how wealthy they might be or how much uh, opportunity they might have available to them by the, by the quality of their work, you know? And so I'm really very conscious about that. And I try not to ask that of people and I say, you know, kind of say sometimes, Hey, so what makes you happy? You know? And that starts a whole nother trajectory of a conversation because, you know, I've, we've all been at the little function where they go, what do you do? Well, I'm a dad, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, my professional uh, title. And, uh, and they go, I am too. I said, well, what's that like for you? You know, but the fact of the matter is that we so value our economic status that that is the way in which we engage most people 90% of the time. And so it still has this place of significance and importance in how we interact with other folks. Also as a culture, don't like talking about money. We ask about things that kind of float and touch on it, but we don't well, ever. Say, you get, can make the assessment. Oh, yeah. you're a professor. Okay, let me calculate in my head how much does a professor make today? You know. Oh, you're a social worker. Oh, you know, away with you. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond trying to find out how much other people make in terms of their income, I think asking someone what they do, apart from being sort of small talk shorthand is a way for us to quickly make sense of someone else that we don't know. And yet you're right. I, I think most of the time our job title is not the expression we want on our tombstone. I would rather my tombstone, for example, said dad than vice president of widget sales. So most people don't self-identify by their job title. But I want to ask each of you, beyond income, why do you do what it is that you do? Well, I mean, the nonprofit sector is extremely lucrative, so I don't know what. Um, it's raining every day. <laughs> for me personally, when I was uh, going to law school, I didn't ever have any de desire to work for uh, a, like a big law firm. And so, uh, you know, I think it was just always my inclination to do some sort of public interest or public service type of job. And I think uh, for my current position at Appleseed, I have the opportunity not only to do legal work, but also policy and community work. And so um, I get, I have this sort of multifaceted job where I not only do, you know, legal research, but I'm able to uh, do policy work at the state legislature and um, with Congress. But I also get to talk to people on the ground who are going to be the most affected and, and, you know, and who are the most important people in terms of what types of policies we try to, um, advance. And so I get a lot of pleasure out of, out of that. Uh, it's a job that's, you know, not predictable in terms of what what I might be working on. Uh, but I always know that, you know, whatever it is that I do, it, it'll be extremely fulfilling and rewarding. I work to survive, but not in the sense of the, in monetary terms. I mean, I am a gay man. I'm a minority. Uh, there are barriers that come up that, that I have to intentionally fight every day. So one, before I can get legally married, before I could uh, adopt, I had to be involved in social justice work. Uh, and, and then when you realize that when you're fighting for yourself, you're really have to fight for other people because we're all in the same struggle, which is why I work right now for an organization, uh, the Urban League of Nebraska, that is uh, focused on civil rights and for African-Americans because it's the same struggle that we're in. Um, so I'm doing it to survive. And so the next person behind me, maybe maybe they can just fight to get a new car. That'd be nice. But I'm actually fighting for rights. <laughs> I'm a trained nuclear nonproliferation policy analyst. And the fact that I'm now really, I said, people, so what do you do? I said, my job is to help people to become better people now, you know, and I find so much more joy in that, in spite of the fact that I initially wanted to save the world. That was my mission. I was a no nukes kind of kid when I was growing up. And, and so what's happened in that 
period of time since I started to work is I've really come to understand the importance and the centrality of, of, of trying to stay human all the time. And as I interact with different communities and, and so the job that I have allows me the freedom to do that. I mean, it's uh, to me, I, I don't feel like I ever go to work. I feel like I'm going out to do what I want to do. And so I feel pretty fortunate, but it's, it took, you know, 30 years of work to, to achieve that. And so I'm feeling pretty good about it now. Um, and now I'm, my concerns are not about myself. They're, my concerns are about other people every day. What can I do to help them to achieve that, which, you know, they desire and which they deserve more than anything else. And it's a struggle for me because I realize all the barriers that you spoke about, Michael, are, are there every day for so many people. And I, and, but I'm able to be cognizant of it and try to help guide them through that process. And like I said, so I think really at the end of the day, my job is really to help people to become better people. However, that manifests itself. And, 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 you know, if it's just job skills alone, that's only part of the equation because that doesn't make a happy person. I think Stewart's, uh, you know, reminder that sometimes work is drudgery is very apropos because for so many people, that's exactly what it is. And yet my family were farm workers, migrant farm workers. And the one thing I always was blew me away. I would watch my grandmother picking strawberries and she was, I mean, granted, she was stoop labor, hot, you know, dirty. But she took so much pride in what she did. And I think, and I used to think to myself, man, if I could ever have that much pride in the work that I do, I know I'm going to be a happy person. And, you know, I think I finally, after a lot of work, and was, it's been hard. But the fact is, is that, uh, you know, I think that's how we derive satisfaction from the labor that we engage in on a daily basis. With me in dialogue working to make the world work well have been Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado, Michael Sitch-Jones, and Omar Zabi. Thank you so much for being here, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. Behind-the-scenes management was provided by the magnificent Marion Fay. Lives is a production of Squish Talks. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. I'm Stuart Chittenden.